You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash Center. I chatted with Representative Mike Rogers, who is a national security commentator on CNN, where he also hosts a TV series called Declassified, The Untold Stories of American Spies. Representative Rogers previously served 14 years in Congress, ultimately chairing the House Intelligence Committee from 2011 to 2015. He is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Belfer Center. I want to start off with a little bit about your, your background, because you, you were an FBI agent for, for several years. And uh, that is kind of the dream job for so many kids. And I was curious to know if, if, if that was, if you were living your childhood dream as an FBI agent. I was living my childhood dream. I dreamed about this since I was a sophomore in high school. I had determined I was going to be an FBI agent. And so I went a little different route. I got out. I went through uh, college, uh, took ROTC in the Army, was commissioned a, a, an officer in the United States Army, served for a little over three years, kept applying to the FBI, kept applying. Finally, uh, they wouldn't return your calls. They wouldn't return my okay. calls. But finally, they decided yeah. they would let me in. It's actually a funny story. I. I had gotten in, and so you go through this whole process, at least you did back then, and you become eligible. You, they put you in a big pool of candidates. Now, just because you're in the pool doesn't mean you'll get hired. If they have a decrease in funds, they, they don't hire. So you could go through all of that process and not get hired. They can still say yes to you and then yes. say no. Yes, exactly. Oh, like, well, ran out of time or your clearance is over wow. and you have to restart the whole thing. So I, was, I had just gotten out of the Army thinking, all right, I think I'm going to get in. Uh, and then I found out I was in this pool and it was going to be a while. And they called up and said, Hey, somebody dropped out of a class. Mm-hmm. Would you, could you be there? And, and I was in San Francisco. I was stationed at Fort Ord, California in the Army with the, I was an ordnance guy in the 7th Infantry Division. And they had, they said, Can you be there in four days or something crazy? Uh, and I went, Yes, absolutely. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but yes, I'll be there. And so I went back and threw all my stuff in the garage. I had uh, military officers were my roommates. Threw everything in the garage. Said, "I don't. I'm, I'll be back at some point to straighten this out." Got in the car, drove across the country. And you showed drove. Up. Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. Well, I didn't have any money. I was an I was an ar- young army lieutenant. You know, going into the FBI. I, you know, still paying off my college loans. Well, I had no money, but I. I'll tell you what. I was darn determined. I was going to get to the FBI Academy, which amazing. And then, and then you spent uh, about twenty years in politics. Your first as a state senator, and then of course as a congressman, and then as chairman of the uh, House Intelligence Committee. Right. Why did you leave politics? Were you having, you, you were having too much fun? Uh, listen, I loved being chairman. I, mean, I, I really am very fortunate. I had every job that I've been in, I have enjoyed immensely, uh, but always was looking for that next adventure. And I told myself I didn't want to be that politician that was in office 25 years and turned around and looked back and went, what, how did that happen? Um, I did a lot. I accomplished a lot in the committee. We worked in a bipartisan way. We've got some great reports on activities happening in the United States, the, the Chinese interest in, tele, in dominating the telecommunications interest here in the United States. That was a report we did. We, I cut $6 billion out of the Intel budget, didn't impact mission. A lot of things got it functioning again. And I thought, you know, this is the right time for me to go, to, to do something else, to allow somebody else to come in and do this important work. So I didn't leave. I mean, obviously there were things frustrating. Congress was not functioning well outside of our committee. Right. Uh, a lot of things weren't getting done. It was it would take forever to do almost nothing. And so I decided I was going to apply 
uh, you know, all the things that I've learned over my lifetime and all the international travel in it, which was yeah. phenomenal. Um, and, and apply it to trying to, to, to get out and find different platforms to communicate uh, issues of interest to me. Is bipartisanship dead? No, I don't think it is. You have to work at it. You have to work at it very hard. And you have to be willing to take, uh, you know, a few knives in the back. Um, both my Democrat colleague, who, by the way, is still a personal friend of mine today, uh, a guy named Dutch Ruppersberger from Maryland, Who's same kind of a story. He was a, a mm -hmm. prosecutor. Matter of fact, he joked often. Uh, I can't even blame him. I'm, I'm going to tell his joke because he'll 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 just give me heck for this for forever. Uh, he always used to say, "Well, you know, he was an FBI agent. I was a prosecutor, and as, as you know, all FBI agents listen to their prosecutor." Uh, we used to joke about that a lot because I was the chairman. He right. was the vice chairman. Um, we became friends because we had a common mission. Yeah. We wanted to make sure that the intelligence committee, excuse right. me, community was working appropriately. It was doing the kinds of missions that it was supposed to do uh, and doing it within the law, within the budget. Uh, and we were very engaged in set reestablishing the counterintelligence oversight of the committee that had kind of faded away. We were very aggressive about the covert action side, which is the most sensitive kind of programs yeah. the U.S. government participates in, and I wanted a uh, kind of a diversity of thought on on these programs to make sure uh, that they didn't get rubber stamped uh, and they didn't get derailed just because right. somebody didn't like them either. So we found that common ground and moved forward, and that to me was important. You find it in other places in smaller amounts. The problem is with all of the social media out there today that didn't exist even, I don't know, 15 years ago, that pressure for partisanship never ends. So it takes, I think, unique members to have the courage to stand up and say, I'm going to work with the other side. Doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I've abandoned my principles, but it means that we're going to find common yeah, That's ground. something I'm curious about, because it might be, it was almost like this digital device, easier to be mean on tweets and easier to be mean on email, um, and it reduces the amount of human interaction, of course, between uh, members of Congress. Huge. Um, so I always wondered if, you know, what's, what's the solution to that? Uh, is it more congressional potlucks? Is it, you know, they, but I mean, really, seriously, like, are, are, how, do you, how do you get people to hang out more uh, so they get along? You know, this is an interesting story to that point. I, uh, when I was running for office in the year of 2000 in Michigan, I was, didn't, couldn't say I was some master politician. I was out there, you know, stumbling through this election that happened to be the closest congressional race 111 votes. 111 votes. Yeah, which I don't recommend. <laughs> if you're going to win, win big. Don't do this. This is this is the hard way to do it. But I happened to be uh, out of my district in Grand Rapids, and I saw at this huge charity event, and uh, Gerald Ford was sitting at a table by himself. And this place, they probably had 5,000 people at this thing, and I kept looking at that, and I said, that just can't be right. So I just said, what the heck? I went up and introduced myself, and I said, Mike Rogers, running for Congress, and sir, I'd appreciate any, you know, Advice you can provide. And he said, sit down, young man. So he took maybe 20, 30 minutes. He just sat and chatted with me. It was phenomenal. But he said then, in 2000, he was worried about the direction of the sheer meanness and divide and inability to, to, to bridge differences in Congress. And I thought this was funny. He said, you know the thing that really ruined that civility? He said, you know, when I went, you'd pack up the U-Haul and you drive, right? You didn't really fly back then. You drive to Washington D.C. and you'd find, you'd rent a place, uh, and you bring your kids and your family, and then you would go back in summers, 
And he said, during that time when you were there, your kids played together, mm -hmm. or you, you, know, you saw them on the soccer field, or the baseball team, or the yeah. football team, and you got to know them as people. And he said, that's all gone. And he said, you know what killed Congress? I said, what? He said, the jet plane. He said, once that bell goes off, every member, I was guilty of this too, runs out, gets on that plane, and flies back to your home state. And he said, that really hurt this congeniality. And, you know, some would argue that congeniality costs principles. I, I just, I never believed that. If you if you're, believe what you believe, uh, and you're willing to work with the person that might disagree with you on a few things, it's amazing what you can get done together. It's true. I mean, I guess we haven't really reached the level of, was it might have been pre-Civil War when I think there was a senator that came to man on the Senate floor, I think in the 1860s. So maybe maybe things could, it could be worse. It could right? be worse. There could be some shooting or some beatings. Yeah. None of that. Um, no, now it's just cyber beatings. Wow. Yeah. Uh, before we get to, well, so we, transitioning to a little technology and, and media. Um, so you're, you're, you're now uh, such a prominent voice in media. Mm. And what's, what's always struck me, uh, it's, it's made me curious about your your background. Is that you know, as as a politician, the media is a very different animal. I mean, it's you got reporters and you've got you know, their spin and things like that. But now, when you've now entered the industry, has your perception of media changed now that you are a member of it? Well, and you know, I always find that a little shocking that I'm a member of the media. I'm not necessarily a journalist, right. so I'm a commentator, a contributor. Um, I'm an executive producer of a TV show I put together called Declassified for CNN and with CNN. Um, I don't know if I see myself as part of it. I guess I am. I guess I have to get over this just the same you gotta way. Own it. Yeah, just the same way I used to say I wasn't a politician, but I guess I was. Um, you know, it's. I think it's a really important function in government. I do think there's a lot of affirmation news out there where I'm going to tune in to what affirms the way I believe versus challenges me to think through a problem. I worry a little bit about that, and I think that's a result of all the ways you can get media now. It's not just flick on the nightly news on NBC or the cable news with CNN or Fox or MSNBC. And so we're finding this drift where people are going to where they want, they're hearing things that they want to hear about right. the news. So the, the echo chamber. Absolutely. I, I call it affirmation news. And okay. can we get away from that? Can we challenge ourselves? I hope so. I don't see it happening anytime soon. I think you're going to see more of this versus less of it. And that worries me. It worries me about the dialogue in America because a lot of that does result in when these members go home, people screaming at them with a, you know, at the top of their lungs in a way that that person wouldn't do that anywhere else. And that, that worries me a little bit that we've, we've lost that notion that even though we disagree, we can talk it through. I, I, that to me is important. Well, What's what's interesting here is, and there's also, of course, you know, it's in the news um, every day about um, you know false news and mm -hmm. fake news and all that sort of stuff. Um, what's the role of, or what do you think the role is of a private industry like Facebook or Twitter? Because on the one hand, I feel, you know, there's almost like this obligation to society to reduce the promotion of clear falsehoods and lies. On the other hand, it's a um, you know it's limiting speech, so. Where do you see the role of private industry yeah, in this? I mean, you run into the same question. When does the government get to say what you can say and not say? And when does private sector get to say what you can and can't say? Right? I mean, it's the same equation, and it's difficult. And boy, does that get people fired up. But I'll give you a great example why we need to be worried about this. The, the Russians, uh, we believe the Russians, let me qualify that, uh, were engaged in an information operation campaign through trying to plant a false story 
uh, in Lithuania when the, the Germans were going to handle the Lithuanian end of, of showing the Russians that NATO was alive and well. So they sent about a thousand troops. Lo and behold, there was a story circulating right after they got there that German, 15 German men, or some number, I may, I may be wrong about the number, raped a young girl. And of course, outrage ensues. Come to find out, wasn't true. Wasn't true at all. And looks like the nation state of Russia decided that they were going to cause problems for these NATO troops operating in Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia. And so you think about that, this, this, this is a whole new level, mm -hmm. level of what false information. And it's creeped, it's crept into politics as well, where false stories attack you know, good American candidates, even if I disagree with them, right. uh, let me disagree with them on their policy, not because there's a story that somebody's trying to influence the outcome of an election. And so we, this is something that we're, I, I'm not even sure how we're going to get a handle on it. Is there no solution? Uh, uh, you know, there probably is. I just, I'm not sure I know what it is right sitting here today, mainly because it's, is it the government's role to do that? I get a little worried. You put the government in charge probably of not, policing right. thought. That's a bad idea. Right. Is it private sector only? Well, if I'm a corporation that has an interest in doing well next quarter, am I making the right decision on this too? Probably not. So how do we do it? And that's the. This is what we're going to have to wrestle with in an in an age when information is so prevalent. Yeah. I mean, it's just at a touch of your fingers, you can get just about anything, uh, including you can stumble on some of these stories that just aren't true. And sometimes it feels like the media is feeding this flame in many ways because by reporting on certain things, if it, there's there's an almost an irony here um, that it uh, it does, doesn't promote them necessarily, but it promotes it, it popularizes them, um, and I think that that is also a tension that must be grappled with from from folks in media as well. Absolutely, and this constant twenty four hour, and I'm I'm yeah. part of a news network that is really important to try to be first and accurate, uh, and I have been in those new newsrooms. I do watch them try to do that. Yeah. Uh, but when you're trying to be first and accurate, these news outlets are going to make mistakes, and we see that happen. Those, I think, are more honest yeah. mistakes, but they're still mistakes. Right. They still, you know, create a narrative, uh, and, I, you know, we're going to have to be cautious in how we move forward in that. Sure. But they have to self-police that themselves, I think. They have to become that news network that they want to become in the public. You know, if it's a news network that's designed for one party or another, people should probably know that. Uh, and they will know that, and then that affirmation cycle happens. I think the successful news network will be that trusted news. Now, where do you yeah. go for trusted news? I think that the, the next fight in uh, media is going to be that. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Do you like history? I love history. I'm, I'm a novice, and I'm not very good at it, but I love it. Uh, have we have we ever seen, historically, have we ever seen uh, what we're witnessing today uh, with um, the turmoil of... Uh, the early, sort of early days of the Trump administration, the turmoil uh, with the national security, uh, national security establishment, with the FBI, with the press. Um, is that something that, that has happened? Um, it feels out of the norm. Well, I think it feels that way. If you even go back to the revolution, there was no kindness amongst our founding fathers when it came to elected office. 
lots of problems there. You look at Teapot Dome, which became, you know, a big part of American history and trying to understand the turmoil that was happening right during and after the Civil War. And so if you think about those big issues, we've seen it before. It's just so different now because you've added another component, and that component is social media. And so I think we have seen it before. I don't think this is the end of democracy as we know it. Uh, I don't think it's all over. I don't think we all ought to go to bed and pull the sheets up and say, darn it, what happened? You know, this is part of our growing democracy. And we're going to change, you know, 50 years and 100 years, we're going to look very different than we do today. It's okay. We just need to embrace the notion that democracy is a part of that and not walk away from it. Are we going to have problems? You bet. I think we are. I think we're, you know, we've got to try to temper things down. I think we have someone in the White House right now that's not interested in doing that, at least yet. Um, I'm hoping he makes that transformation. Um, and I think that would help calm this kind of very edgy feeling that a lot of people have across the country. Right. I guess the concern I think is, is, is it's hard to predict. You know, it's and there's no certainty and predictability about these. You know, the relationship, for instance, between the FBI and the White House, mm-hmm. uh, the relationship, the things that you sort of thought were so uh, sacred almost, um, they're certainly being challenged, and that is worrisome. I guess from a from this predictability standpoint, it kind of feels like we're on yeah. shaky ground. So, uh, and I'm not sure. So the 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 case officers in the CIA and the special agents of the FBI, listen, they're not as rattled. They're not as engaged in this as we. This is the you know the seventh floor, mm-hmm. if you will, the C-suite fighting yeah. with uh, the White House or having disagreements with the White House. The agents themselves, you're not you know they may talk about it more over coffee than they used to, but they're getting up every day. They took an oath. They're, they believe in that badge that they carry. I mean, I, I've you know, been a part of that culture, and it is a, it's a good, strong culture that, that breeds yeah. integrity. It really does. So, you, so you, does that mean, so you're suggesting almost that the leaks are coming from the top rather than they're coming from your middle or lower? Uh, I think a lot of those, if, you know, this is Mike Rogers talking, I think yeah. they came out of uh, Department of Justice, not necessarily the FBI, the mm. working agents. Right. Um, and there's a lot of administrative folks that are in Department mm. of Justice that would touch this kind of information. Some of it's been accurate, some of it hasn't been accurate. And that's even, you know, more damaging, yeah. I think. Um, and the notion when those, when the Russians, uh, well, we believe the Russians, allegedly the Russians, yeah. took uh, the emails from uh, off of Podesta's server. Some of that showed that Department of Justice was leaking criminal case information to out to influence something. Well, we should we can't tolerate that. We can we should never if it's your candidate or not your candidate, we should never tolerate that. That is the one thing that separates our justice system from anyone else in the world. Right. You can count on that. That lady justice is blind. Yeah. And when we lose that and you know, now you have leaks, kind of, now all of this needs to stop. It just is not healthy for the United States. It's not healthy for our law enforcement community or our intelligence community to keep this up and both ways. There are shooting going on both ways and that it just should stop. Uh, we just got a couple minutes left. I yeah. do want to get to the show. Yeah. Um, so you have a, an amazing show uh, on CNN called Declassified, the untold stories uh, of American spies. Um, it's amazing. Uh, everyone should watch it. Thank you. Uh, there's some great, some great historical, uh, enriching historical narratives. And record it and watch it twice. <laughs> um, do you know a good spy when you see one? Oh boy, I've I've been around spies before, but people who aren't friendly to the United States. You know the big kerfuffle over this ambassador from the, right. from the Russian Federation here. I've met with him twice, uh, including one time uh, he invited me to lunch, of which I went. And we are, he has a, a residence, a personal residence, that has this 
huge old ballroom. Think of the 1800s when they were building these great big houses in Washington, D.C. for entertaining. Had a huge ballroom. And it was just us on this little two-seat table right in the middle of it. It was the oddest thing. It was a little bit. I think it was designed that way. And he had a uh, one of those little buzzers. So when, uh, And I don't even know where these folks came from, but when the next course or whatever would come, he'd hit the buzzer and they'd come out of nowhere and the plates would be gone and the new food would be down. It was a fascinating. Did you feel uh, like you were in a Bond movie? <laughs> I did. Matter of fact, I thought, mm, I'm not sure I'm coming out of this. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know where I go out of here. But it was uh, it was all good. It was We were trying to forge some yeah. a relationship on... Uh, uh, on getting the Russians to cooperate with uh, drug enforcement on the northern border of Afghanistan was my intent, certainly. But, you know, and, and of course, my time in the FBI and, and my time as chairman, you get to see and... What are, what are, the, what are the characters? Uh, what, do you think I'd make a good spy? Well, it depends, you know. A, you got to be personal. Okay. Personable, excuse well. me. Uh, and I, I guess you do have to be personal, too. Uh, and it's really about, you know, being a good spy is about having the ability uh, to think on your feet, uh, to be able to operate by yourself in pretty dangerous circumstances and have the wit and kind of savvy to engage in conversations. And at the end of the day, you're selling the United States and what we stand for to someone so that they would commit an act of treason in their country to help our country. Right. That's a big deal. And so uh, you could be a great spy. Uh, but that it's, remember what you're asking someone to do. It, it really does take the right person to be able to walk in you're and misleading, know. You can help mislead. You can help you Well, you know, it's, there's you, probably some manipulation that you learn along the way. Word. Yeah, you're learning to manipulate them in a certain way, uh, clearly. Uh, and at the end of the day, you are asking them to risk their lives for yeah. their country and do something very, very, very dangerous. You're asking them to risk their lives not for their country, for your country. For our country, right. yeah, exactly. Um, and so it does take a special person. The training helps you get there, but you could be a good spy. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> Who's your favorite spy of all time, Barack Obama? Uh, Barack Obama? <laughs> I wouldn't qualify him favorite spy. Uh, yeah, do you I have to tell you, yeah, I have a great spy. Uh, uh, Marty Peterson is my favorite spy of all time. Tell us about Marty. Marty Peterson was the first woman CIA officer who went to Moscow and ran a very senior agent for the United States of America. And I love the story on how she got there, too. So she was... Uh, got her college degree. This was a time when women were not normally hired by the CIA to be case officers. Uh, and she had gotten her degree. She married someone who was uh, a CIA officer. Uh, they, he got posted in Vietnam. He was killed by the Russians, uh, or they believed that the, the missile mm-hmm. was a Russian missile, shot his plane down over Laos, killed him. So she comes back and obviously distraught, uh, and she goes to the CIA and says, I want to be a case officer. And they say, sorry, we don't hire women case officers, uh, but we have a great secretary shop. And she kicked the desk and said, no, uh, I, you know, I, yeah. I think she spoke two or three languages at the time. So she goes through this process uh, and think of that. Then she gets sent to Moscow to run a very senior uh, agent. Uh, and, you know, lived through some pretty tough times there, ended up getting caught, not because of something that she did, but another mole in the U.S. government yeah. gave up her asset really? and her asset. Uh, they caught them in, in the act of meeting and transferring information on a bridge in Moscow. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a substance of one of the episodes. Um, it is. It so like, I don't want to yeah. ruin it for our viewers. Yeah, we yeah. won't talk any more we about that. We won't tell you how it ends. Exactly. But I'll tell you, she yeah. was a great American spy. And, uh, and you know, through this these series, and this is one of the things I learned over this time, both as an FBI agent and as chairman, 
there are some great stories. So people have some, I think, misperceptions of what uh, being a, a, a spy is, or the kinds of hard work it goes to go into what it, mm -hmm. the small details really matter. You have to think through these things. Um, and so a lot of those cases, if you go through those cases, it'll give you from their perspective what they were going through. You know, they get a little scared too. Right? It's not all martinis and Austin Martins. Uh, like James Bond will have you believe, right? It it's, actually can be tough sometimes. It can be tough. Right. And as she said, she drank beer in Moscow. She didn't have a martini. Well, well uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thank it's you been very much. Excellent. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank okay. you. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.